Scripture reading this morning will be from Matthew chapter 8. You can stand as I read, uh, beginning in verse 23 of Matthew 8. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he had come to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so exceedingly violent that no one could pass by that road. And behold, they cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Now there were, was a, a distance from, the, from them a herd of many swine feeding. And the demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Be gone. And they came out. And went into the swine, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. And the herdsmen fled and went away to the city and reported everything, including the incident of the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they entreated him to depart from their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, they were bringing to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went to his home. And when the multitude saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to men. I'll pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we again just thank you, Lord, for loving us and for um, sending your Son um, to die in payment for our sin, that we might be restored to a relationship with you through faith in Christ. Thank you, God, for all that you've done and that that work is finished. Thank you, God, for your power and um, your might, Lord, is displayed in how you have dealt with sin and forgiven us and restored us. We pray as we look at your word that, again, our hearts would be drawn to you and that we would yield to you in faith and obedience and that you would strengthen and encourage us, God, in our walks with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I appreciate um, Kelly filling in for me last week. Um, I was in, I think it was Kelly, right? Yeah. I was in Pennsylvania last week. Patsy and I flew up. I was speaking at a retreat for um, young adults. Um, nice time up there, busy weekend, and flew back uh, Monday. One of the things that we did while we were up there is all these young adults in 20s and um, maybe early 30s, they decided to walk up to the top of the mountain. And so they invited Patsy and I to come along. We almost didn't make it back. Um, 
it was a nice walk, got steeper as we went, and the last quarter mile um, was just pretty much straight up with, and the path was just solid ice, um, except for rocks sticking out, so we had to kind of hope to stand on the rocks because they didn't have ice on them. And then we made our way back um, without dying, but for the next week, my legs felt twice the size of normal, and I kept wanting to look at my thighs to see how pumped up they were because they sure, <laughs> sure were hurting. And it was just a reminder to me of my old age and that, um, you know, Proverbs says, the honor of old men is their gray hair, the glory of young men is their strength, and I don't have much glory anymore. Now, I can remember when I was a young man and my, um, actually just still in junior high, and a good friend of my parents was a professional weightlifter, and he was quite uh, massive, and, um, and uh, he told me, that he used to look just like me. And I thought, that's amazing. How can that be? And so he got me into lifting weights, and I never looked like him, but there was a lot of change, and I was quite proud of it. If you ever want to know, just ask me. I'm, I'm happy to t tell you. Um, this year at His Hill, we have a lot of students that are weightlifters. Um, never had so many guys that are weightlifters. And they like to point like this. I think it's over there. It might be over there. And we, we see a lot of, lot of that kind of stuff. And Am I right? You really are all those girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These, there are three miracles here that I just read. And what does that have to do with what I've just been talking about? These miracles are designed, I think, um, Matthew has arranged them in this order, to um, confront us with our total weakness and with the Lord's total strength, His omnipotence, His power. Power over nature, power over demons, and even power over our sin. And we are absolutely helpless in all three of these areas. We have no authority, no power whatsoever over nature, none over the demons, and none over our sin. We cannot deliver ourselves and certainly cannot secure forgiveness for our sins. So in the first um, of the miracles here, beginning in verse 23, they, Jesus says, get in the boat. They followed him in the boat, and they head over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, um, about a seven-mile um, 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 track across the sea there. And they hadn't gotten very far, apparently, when there's a massive storm, um, a life-threatening storm, and all 12 of those men, those disciples, were in sheer panic. There was utter helplessness, utter weakness to do anything in face of this storm. And amazingly, Jesus is sound asleep in this little boat. We don't know exactly how big this boat would have been, but there was, a few years ago, um, a boat um, that recovered in the mud of the Sea of Galilee, which many people now think might have been the same kind of boat that Jesus was in. And they've restored it, and it's in a museum now on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's very small. Um, it would have been tough for 13 men to have gotten into that boat. And if that's the size... 
all the more that boat would have been tossed um, to and fro and, and certainly at risk of, of swamping and every man dying. And yet Jesus is sleeping like a baby. Amazing. No fear. No panic. Seems to be no um, regard for his own life. We know it's not that he doesn't care about his life. It seems that this may be an indication that there was no fear in him for the loss of life. He was totally at peace in his relationship with the Father and no sense of self-preservation, certainly no panic. He's just without fear. And so, yeah, he's exhausted, but the biggest thing here is that he is, he is not under the grip of fear when faced with complete weakness and helplessness. That's amazing. And I think that we need to be reminded of when it comes to things in nature, we are not by any means in control. We'd like to think that we are. We're living in a crazy time when um, there's a large element of society that is, is wanting us to think that climate change is due to human behavior and that we have the power to change the climate, at least to keep it from being worse and to make it become better. There is nothing like that in Scripture. This is a passage that is designed to show us that the only one who is in control of the weather and climate is God. It is not us. God never gave man this kind of authority. And if he did, it has been long since um, removed from us when Adam sinned. So we have here that, and I'm not trying to be political and say that man doesn't have, um, can't impact his environment. Certainly we can, and we should be good custodians of it and not, um, not um, mar it. Um, but only God can destroy this world, and he has said that he will, and it will not be destroyed until he does it. We should still care for it as good custodians, as caretakers, as we've been charged with, but we will never have authority over the wind and the waves. Only God does. In Ecclesiastes, in chapter 8, it says, No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind. Only God can do that. We are helpless when it comes to this. This is one of the reasons I believe in the book of Revelation with the tribulation events that God is using natural calamity, hailstones, 100 pounds each, um, the, the deadening of the waters, and, and, um, and, and one thing after another, he's using those things, these natural events, in order to bring men to an awareness that they have no power over the environment that they live in. Only God does. And that weakness, that powerlessness is meant, to call, is meant to, for us to cry out to God to save us. As these men are crying out to Jesus, save us, Lord. He arose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Um, when he rebukes the wind and the sea, different um, commentaries will say that he's using the same language of when he rebukes demons. And then um, conjecturing that perhaps this storm was conjured up by the devil and that the devil was trying to keep Jesus from going where he's heading, where the demoniacs were. That could be. 
we don't know for sure, but we do know that at least on occasion that God does give the devil also power over this natural world. When the devil came and asked the Lord if he could touch um, Job, and God said, you can do everything short of taking his life, one of the things that the devil did was create a windstorm that collapsed the house where Job's children were and all the kids were killed. And then in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 13, we're told that there will be a second beast, not the Antichrist, but another beast, probably a religious figure, who will make fire come down out of heaven um, in the presence of men. And so there are times in Scripture where we seem to see that, that Satan is also given some authority over this natural realm. But God is the one with ultimate authority. And, we, and that should not be lost on us as Christians when we see the world wanting to, to put that authority, act as though men have authority over the environment when it is only God who does. The second miracle here is when they did come over to the other side of the, um, of the Sea of Galilee, two men who were demon-possessed came out of the tombs and they were exceedingly violent, and no one could pass by that road. And they cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And then we're told that there was a herd of pigs. One of the other gospels says there were 2,000 of them, and they asked that they could be sent out into the pigs. Jesus permitted that, and then the pigs rushed down a steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. And then the herdsmen fled and went away to the city and reported everything, including the incident of the demoniacs. And the whole city came out, and they asked Jesus to leave. One of the things that we can do when we're looking at Scripture is we can pull together um, all the different passages that talk about a different subject, and you can come up with a biblical theology of that subject by looking at all the passages of Scripture that pertain to that, that subject. We can do that with demons and angels. And this is one passage that we would have to go to if we were going to do a thorough study on what the demons are and are able to do. And just some things listed in this passage, and not to dwell on it, but I think it's worth, um, it's profitable to look at it. First of all, obviously they are real. And demons, they can possess people. And even multiple demons can, can possess a person at the same time. The parallel accounts in Mark and Luke tell us that this one demon spoke for all of them and said that his name was Legion, for there were many. And so this man perhaps was, was possessed by, by a thousand or more demons, if the word Legion is taken literally. We know that demons, uh, de the demon-possessed will associate with each other, according to this passage, when no one else will associate with them. Demons will know who Jesus is and that they are under his authority. Demons know their destiny. Demons prefer to inhabit something rather than nothing. We see that in this passage as well as in another where Jesus said, if a demon is cast out and nothing comes back in to fill the place where the one was, then seven more will come back in. We can see from this passage that demons can inhabit animals. Demons alter the personalities of whatever they inhabit. They altered the personalities of these men, and they altered the personality of the pigs when they went into them. And it's not for the good, is it? They are losing their minds. These men are insane. They are violent. They are insane. Um, they are in bondage. They are in darkness. 
And this is what the devil does. I've pointed out to our students on different occasions that when the Spirit of God controls a person, there's actually great freedom that comes to that person. You'll never see a person's personality more fully and richly than when that person is living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But where there's Satan, there is bondage. And so whether it's for an individual or for a nation, when Satan is having his way, there's great bondage, there is irrationality, insanity. All of this is because of demon influence. We shouldn't, be, shouldn't miss the application there that not only is that true for an individual, but it can be true for a society and a nation. When you see an entire people that are not functioning rationally any longer, smart people are not functioning rationally, it is probably demonic. And it's not just that they need to be informed. That's not the issue. This irrationality speaks of insanity, and the devil is the one who brings that about, not God. Demons affect the mind. Demons give supernatural power and strength. Superhuman strength would be the better way to put it. They could break chains, break ropes. There was no way to keep them confined. The point of that is that, again, we can't control the spiritual, the supernatural realm. Demons are stronger than people. They, these men were tried to be brought under control. Nobody could control them. And we have no control over the demonic realm. Demons will encourage preoccupation with death and the dead. They were dwelling among the tombs. It troubles me when I see people, young people in particular, that are preoccupied with death and, and, um, and the dead. That is an in indication of, the, of Satan, I believe, working in a person's heart because this is not what God does. God is about life. Satan is about death. Demons will inspire self-harm. It says in Mark 5, 5 that they were, that they were, they were um, gashing themselves, um, cutting themselves in this, uh, as they were under the influence of these demons. Self-harm is never a thought that God will give to a person. And I've heard more than one say, and I've appreciated the counsel, that if you ever have a thought of harming yourself, it is not from God, but it is rather from the devil. Jesus came to give life. The devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. I was at a funeral a number of years ago. I'll never forget. It was one of those most tragic events where a, a young couple were murdered in their home, and um, their baby was left alone by God's grace. But this couple was brutally murdered in their home, Christian couple. And, um, and I went out for the funeral, and I appreciated what the pastor said because everybody's just trying to deal with this evil, and it was just pure evil. And the pastor quoted from John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. That would also be true for any other kind of thought of self-harm. The thought of suicide is never a thought that comes from God. This comes from the devil. Of cutting yourself, starving yourself, any kind of self-harm, it comes from the devil. Those thoughts that you just need to hurt yourself in any way never come from God. Demons also encourage nudity. In Luke 8, 27, we're told that the man, in one man in that account, but there would have been two, 
um, were naked as they dwelled in the tombs and away from society. These are things that are, that are demonic in their origin. To put it on the positive, um, God would never encourage public nudity. God would never encourage self-harm. God would never encourage a preoccupation with death in the dead. God gives us strength over ourselves, but he does not want to, he's not typically giving us a superhuman type of strength. That's not what he's doing. God does not rob the mind of sanity and rationality. He restores the mind to rationality and sanity. He doesn't alter the personality in ways of darkness, but he frees the personality. All of these things are so utterly contrary to who God is. The work of the demons totally contrary to God and his work. Any of us would have been frightened, to say the least, if we had walked by that road and had these two naked, insane, superhuman, superhumanly strong men run out of the tombs. Would have scared us to death. That's the point. We are powerless in the face of this kind of evil. And there is evil in this world. It is foolishness to think that demons don't still exist and are still at work, and that Satan, the god of this world, is not wrecking havoc on this world. It is foolishness to think that everything we face is, is physical, tangible, um, can be explained rationally in terms of just, of just what we can see and handle. It's foolishness. There is this, we live in a world full of evil spirits, demons. And it ought to make us face our powerlessness. There is nothing we can do. Nothing we can do in our own strength. Then the next um, miracle is a physical healing again, but it's a little different. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, they were bringing to him a paralytic lying on a bed. We don't know whether the man was a quadriplegic or a paraplegic. I'd like to think here that it's probably quadriplegic because he could not get to Jesus without assistance. Even a, in cultures where there were no wheelchairs, a paraplegic could get around. I know this firsthand. I was in college when we had a student come to us who was a paraplegic from India, and he had spent his whole life without a wheelchair. And the man was remarkable. He had a little backpack that he put his Bible in. And when it, we had to get from one class to another, or from class to the dining room, he would just literally put his legs over his head, behind his neck, and, and then walk with his hands. And it was amazing how he could get around. This man could not get around. He was lying on a bed. That would indicate to me that he is a quadriplegic. Totally, totally helpless. That's the point. Any other kind of illness, a person is not totally helpless. But a quadriplegic, there is literally nothing they can do for themselves. That, I think, is why Matthew puts this here. He's trying to convey to us our total helplessness. And in this, he puts it in the context of sin. Seeing their faith he said to the paralytic, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. Well, why would he say that? Is the paralysis a consequence of sin? Maybe, 
Some would say that's the point here is that he's paralyzed because of his sin. But Jesus doesn't actually say that. And if that is the case, that the man is paralyzed because of his sin, then why doesn't the man stand up and walk when Jesus forgives him? But Jesus forgives him, and he's still paralyzed. So I lean towards thinking that the paralysis and the sin are not directly related. That, yes, he, he, physical problems come about ultimately because of sin, but there's nothing in the text that would say that this man is paralyzed, is paralyzed because his sin caused the paralysis. I think Matthew's just trying to draw a connection between sin and our utter powerlessness over it, as this man was utterly helpless in his paralysis. I think that's the connection, and that's all that he's trying to say. There are no instances I see in Scripture or outside of Scripture where sin causes paralysis. Maybe a fear can cause, as it were, paralysis, temporary paralysis, but sin we know can cause ulcers, it can cause cancer, it can cause things like that, but, but physical paralysis like a quadriplegic, harder to say. But the biggest caution I have is because when the man was healed, when the man was forgiven, he was not healed. So the, the scribes were saying, this fellow blasphemes. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. It would be easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to prove it. It would be harder to say rise up and walk because you can prove whether the person gets up and walks or not if that is, in fact, how Jesus meant those words. Whatever way he meant it, he proves that he has the power to forgive because he has the power to heal this man in his paralysis. And when the multitude saw it, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So the point, though, I think, is sin and the need of forgiveness is a bigger deal than even paralysis. We are absolutely helpless to do anything about our sin. No person has ever delivered himself from any sin whatsoever. We can change habits, but we cannot free ourselves from sin. There has only been and only ever will be one Savior from sin, and that is Jesus Christ. And the sooner that we call it what God calls it, sin, then the more likely we are to find God's healing, God's deliverance, God's freedom from that sin. The power of Jesus here is over nature, demons, and sin. And if, and if Matthew's making any point, it's that he has absolute power over nature, over demons, and over sin. He alone has the power over nature, the power over the demonic, and power to forgive, Christ alone. And so therefore, there is nothing that can keep Jesus from establishing his kingdom. If Jesus were to be kept from coming, it would be one of these things that would keep him from coming. And they will not keep him from coming back again. 
The only thing that could possibly keep Jesus from returning to establish his kingdom is not nature, not demons, and not even our sin. But he'll say later in Matthew that he will not come again until Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is the one thing that Jesus is still waiting on is for Israel to acknowledge that he is her king. And then Jesus will return. These miracles here, the natural world, the supernatural world of the demonic, and of personal sin. How does the world respond to these three things? In the natural world, we say we can overcome natural events, natural calamities, natural disasters. We can overcome them. You hear it all the time. All we need is better technology, maybe a smaller carbon footprint, maybe, you know, better canal systems or levees or different types of, 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 of energy production, whatever. We say technology is the answer. So foolish. So foolish. Technology doesn't come close to addressing the need in a natural world where we are totally powerless. With the supernatural enemy of the demonic, we respond in saying it's not demonic, it's psychological. We turn to philosophy, we turn to psychology. I had a professor in seminary who was a very well-known psychiatrist and he described all kinds of, most, of the most bizarre behavior that he had seen in his office. Little women, barely five feet tall, that were bouncing their heads off his nine-foot ceiling. People slithering like a snake across the floor, talking in multiple voices. And yet the man said he had never once seen demon possession. Because psychology told him, his psychiatry told him, that if he could give... Um, an antidepressant to a person and stop that behavior, then it wasn't demonic. If he can introduce chemicals that stop the behavior, then the problem is chemical and not spiritual. I'm a simple person. But I thought, you know, I could introduce a bullet and it would stop that behavior as well. And that doesn't mean that it's a physical problem because I can end it physically. That's just me. I'm sorry, you know, I'm just thinking. But you can see the tendency to resort to anything but the truth, to minimize the problem. Because if we say it for what it is, this is demonic, this is spiritual, then we are immediately confronted with our powerlessness. But that's not a bad thing, because it pushes us to Jesus. Personal sin. Psychology says that's just a construct. That's an invention of men in order to keep people under control. You need to experience your liberty and your true potential and stop calling it sin. You're just being inhibited. But if I call it sin, then I have to again face that I am powerless to do anything about it. When I see that the threats are so huge, 
that technology is not the answer, philosophy is not the answer, psychology is not the answer. That every answer that I could get is so feeble to the monumental problems that we face then any option other than Jesus is unthinkable. This is the point that Matthew is trying to make. We live in a world where we are utterly weak. The only thing that keeps us and sustains us, protects us, is the grace of God. We have no power against these things. Only God does. When the people's are faced with who Jesus is. The disciples in the boat said, what kind of man is this? The people of the region of the demoniacs said, please leave. And when Jesus said that he could forgive sin, they said, who does he think that he is? I think those people all had the same problem. What kind of man is this? Please leave. Who does he think he is? And the problem is that Jesus was so close to them, they couldn't see beyond his humanity. All they saw was a man, and they did not see that this is God in their midst. His obvious humanity hindered their comprehension of his deity. They couldn't reconcile his uniqueness with his commonness. They couldn't reconcile his authority with his humanity. That's not our problem, because Jesus is not physically present with us. Our problem is that Jesus is not too near, he's too distant. We see him as impotent. We aren't surprised at his authority, and we are in denial of his ability. We see him as irrelevant, and we become irreverent. We say, if we could see him, These people saw, and they didn't believe. We don't see, and we won't believe. We don't think that the Jesus, the God of the Bible, is willing and able for us and our weakness. Threats to life, the threat of the natural world, the threat of the supernatural world, or the threat of sin and are powerless against it. Threats to life will either be answered in our humanity or in his deity. It's one or the other. Our humanity or his deity. This next short section here, I won't spend much time on it, but as Matthew is doing here, he's giving three miracles and then a section on discipleship, three miracles another section on discipleship, and then another three miracles. And he says, he passed from there, and he came, and he saw, came to a man. He saw um, Matthew sitting in a tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed. Well, the Pharisees, they didn't like that. And it happened that as he was reclining at table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and joined Jesus and his disciples at the table And when the the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but it is those who are ill. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I do not come to call the righteous but sinners. 
And then a second point. The Pharisees are complaining against him, and now even the disciples of John complain against him. But before moving to that, here I think that what John, Matthew's doing here is now showing Jesus' authority over his critics. In the previous one that we looked at two weeks ago, where Jesus said these different men come to him, say, I'll follow you, I'll follow you, I'll follow you. Three different potential disciples, none of them followed him. Each of them, it was because of the competing loyalty to their families and to their home. And there we see Jesus' authority over his ultimate competition, which is family. He has authority even over our families when it comes to following him. And now authority over his critics, the Pharisees, and then secondly, the disciples of John. And his critics here, the Pharisees, are saying, you know, who is this man that associates so freely with sinners and with tax gatherers? And Jesus said, it's the ill that need a physician. I did not, he says, learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is at peace with tax gatherers and sinners. They do not disturb him as they disturb the religious. These tax gatherers were the pariahs of society. There was nobody in the Jewish society that was despised and hated as much as these men were. Jesus knew that, but he came for that very kind of person. His compassion, his empathy for those that needed him the most. He was at peace with being with that kind of person. He came to the sick. He desires compassion, not sacrifice. He calls sinners, not the righteous. I preached on, on this passage a year or so ago um, and in kind of a standalone sermon. And I pointed out that this verse here in verse 13, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, is a quote from Hosea 6.6. 6. The important thing about that is that in Hosea, it's not translated compassion. It's translated loyalty. And it's that Hebrew word hesed. My point in that sermon, I'll just make it real quick here, is don't read this, that feelings of compassion, the emotion of compassion, as good as it is, trumps um, duty to God. He's not saying that in this passage. If that's what he meant, he quoted the wrong place in the Old Testament. Because Hosea, if he was anything, he was dutiful to his wife who was playing the harlot. Her harlotry did not give him an excuse to break the covenant that he was in with her. And that's the word hesed. He was loyal. God desires loyalty and, that, and not sacrifice. Covenant faithfulness is what he is after. But he was not just loyal to her. He loved her in the midst of her sin. So Jesus takes that rich thought of hesed, and he's carving out of it one element of it, which is the heart of compassion. But that does not negate the loyalty, the covenant faithfulness that that word is most about. And so this is why Hosea is such a great picture of it. Jesus is not saying you can ignore your vows. Hosea did not ignore his. Jesus is saying that our vow shouldn't just be a matter of legalism, but ought to be coupled with a heart of love. Both were true for Hosea, and they're certainly true for Jesus. Then the disciples of John came to him and said, What's going on? We, why, aren't you, why aren't you fasting? We fast. The Pharisees fast, but you don't fast. And Jesus just quickly just says, That's not, This is not the time. 
not from my disciples. They will fast when I'm gone. When the bridegroom is present, there's not a time of fasting. When the bridegroom is gone, then they will fast. If there's one application from that is we are living in the time of fasting today. Jesus is not here with us, obviously. This is not a time of self-indulgence, of self-abandonment. This is a time of self-discipline, a time of self-restraint, a time not to live as though this is the only life. That time is coming when our joy will truly be made complete because we will be in the presence of Jesus. We aren't there yet. There are too many Christians, it seems to me, living as though everything in life now is about their personal happiness and their personal fulfillment. This is not that time. This is a time when the, when the Messiah, the bridegroom, is not with us. He will be again. That will be the time of our joy. This is a time where we will not have the fullness of our joy. We will not be totally fulfilled until we are with Jesus again. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away the garment and the worst hair results. Nor do men put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wines, and both are preserved. You've probably heard it many times. I have. People say, when, they, when they're talking about um, a ministry, a church, or a parachurch, and, and new leadership comes in, and they say, we're not going to change the wine, we just want to change the wineskins. What they say is, we're going to keep the substance the same, we're just going to do it a different way. That is not what Jesus meant in this verse. Jesus is saying, new wine and new wineskins. The substance changes and the form changes. I believe that what he's getting at is saying there's a new covenant coming. And it will be different, totally different than the old covenant. And the form of the old covenant, which is Judaism, is not adequate. Because the covenant itself is not adequate. So Christ is bringing a new covenant and a new form. He's probably hinting at the church here. We know from Hebrews 8, verses 6 and 13, that the old covenant has passed away. The old covenant was obsolete, and he has brought in a new covenant. That new covenant is not, cannot work within the confines of Judaism. It's new wine. The old wineskins won't work. It requires a new form, a new wineskin, as well at, to, to go with the new wine. So I burned through this pretty quickly. Um, the main points here are, again, um, Matthew's just simply wanting us to face the reality of our utter weakness and helplessness apart from Jesus Christ. The Savior of this world, in all of its natural calamities, is not technology. It is Jesus Christ. The savior of this world from what is truly demonic activity will never be philosophy, and it won't be diplomacy. You can't act dipl diplomatically with what is insane. Diplomacy is not going to settle what's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now. There is a man who is acting insanely. It is spiritual. We have to recognize it 
and pray for these things as they are. We of all people ought to be clear-headed about these things. And we see smart people acting irrationally. That should be an indication to us that there is something spiritual going on here. We live in a world that is not purely physical. There are spiritual entities and realities, and we should be very aware of that. And when it comes to sin, we should call it what it is. These are not just weaknesses. They're not just um, mistakes. That is a sin. And the only Savior from sin is Jesus Christ. And if we face these things and call them what they are, then we will call upon Jesus in our helplessness and see Christ answer to keep us, to bless us, to work in response to our prayers. Jesus has authority over everything in this world. He has authority over all competition to him, including family, and he has authority over all his critics, no matter what their criticism might be, he stands above. Matthew is clearly wanting to move us toward that place of submission and surrender to him. I will pray. Lord, I thank you again for how you have revealed yourself in word, in the word as the, um, the God of gods, the King of kings, the Prince of peace. Thank you, God that you are all-powerful. We often, Lord, do fail to look to you, and we provide human answers for problems that our humanity will never address. I'd ask that you would forgive us for that, Lord, and that with our helplessness, Lord, that we would be quick to acknowledge that and to cry out to you. You're the only one, God, who can, who can help us and who can deal with these enormous problems. And we thank you that you are able and you are willing. Thank you, God, that um, you do all things well. We are living in a time where Jesus is not here, and we would acknowledge that our joy will be made truly full when we are again in his presence. Until that time, I pray that we would, would live under the discipline and control of your spirit, lives that please you, not just for ourselves, but that we are under your spirit's control, under his authority, and that we live, God, according to your mind and your will for us. In Jesus' name, amen.